Hi, my name is Geraldo Cadava, and this is Writing Latinos, a podcast from Public Books. Latino scholars, memoirists, novelists, journalists, and others have used the written word as their medium for making a statement about Latinidad. We'll talk to some of them about how their writing illuminates the Latino experience. Some of our episodes will be nerdy and academic, while others will be playful and lighthearted. All will offer thoughtful reflections on Latino identity and how writing conveys some of its meanings. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe to Writing Latinos wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have today. We are talking with Sarah Quesada. Quesada is an assistant professor in the Department of Romance Studies at Duke University, and she's also the author of a new book called The African Heritage of Latinx and Caribbean Literature, published by Cambridge University Press. It's a really thought-provoking book about Latinx and Caribbean literature seen through the lens of what Quesada calls Latin Africa, by which she means the historical connections between Latin America and Africa, Africa as a place, an idea, many cultures, and Africans as people, and how they all have come together to shape Latinx and Caribbean literature through their enduring influence and through their memorialization. Sarah, I've been eager to read your book for a while since it came out, and I thank you for taking time to talk with us about it. I'm so honored, Jerry. I'm so just delighted to have you as an interlocutor, and uh, yeah. you know, thank you for reading me. In your introduction, you write about the, quote, always present but erased African influence on Latinx literature. You also talk about the, quote, African haunting of the Latinx authors you write about. Can you say more about what you mean by those terms, presence, erasure, and haunting? Well, first of all, I love how you've singled out these very important moments of the text in which um, indeed there's this presence, this erasure, and this haunting. I think I'll start out with the, for the first sort of key term here, which is presence. What these texts are trying to do is they're trying to produce a kind of South-South solidarity. And at one point, there, it becomes a very fine line between appropriation, cultural appropriation and valorization of a tradition that's not your own. And that valorization or solidarity of those that I write about in this book can be sometimes read as questionable, although I don't think that they are questionable. Rivera's poem, where there's this haunting presence, right, of, of somebody, somebody like Henry Stanley, who was a very famous 19th century ethnographer in the Congo, but was also this genocidal figure, the right-hand person of King Leopold of Belgium, who, of course, is the author of the incredible destruction, annihilation of, of 10 million Congolese and a depletion of resources um, that has led to the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, to its, its debt-laden um, you know, governance to this day. But this is a character that you know is conjured in a, in a poem by this beloved and you know godfather of Chicano letters and so some people would say oh well this is this is problematic but rather I think that that this haunting 
speaks to the centrality of the history of the Congo to the region of the Southwest, which is where Tomar Rivera was from. It's just that it's very surprising to us because that history of the Congo is totally erased, which brings me to my next point in that there is an erasure here of that African history, um, but hopefully also a recovery, right? Which is what the book is trying to accomplish. For example, one of the things that Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Cuban-American Nacho Bejas have in common is Angola. Right. I mean, Garcia Marquez um, is very obsessed with the Cuban Angolan crucible of the Cold War era, goes to Angola, writes about it. It's a text that has not been translated into any other language, um, at least most of the, his chronicles of Angola, with the exception of one Operation Carlota. But uh, and in these chronicles, he traffics in exoticism in some ways, but Obeja, and Obejas, on the other hand, calls this exoticism out. She, she criticizes the commodification of Africa. And in fact, of all of the authors that I write about in this book, she is perhaps the only one that um, is very critical about the ways in which Africanist particularity has been dismissed. In your answer, you alluded to Rivera, Garcia Marquez, and Obejas. And just to make it clear to everyone, we're talking about Tomas Rivera, the Chicano author who is the author of Inose Lo Trago La Tierra, uh, which I think has been translated as The Earth Did Not Devour Him, correct? Right. right. Yeah. And we're talking about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the famous Colombian author, and um, Achi Obejas, the Cuban-American writer. And this was my next question, actually, because it's, it's a kind of... Um, you know, to the uninitiated, at least, it's kind of an odd archive, these authors. And by odd, I don't mean perplexing. I mean, uh, unpredicted. I wouldn't have guessed it. So we're talking about a Dominican-American writer in Juno Diaz, who's one you didn't mention um, in your first answer, but Achio Bejas, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Tomas Rivera, and there's also Rudolfo Anaya, so it's a surprising group of writers to put in conversation with one another, seeing them through the particular lens of Latin Africa. And you say they're often described in homogenous ways as Chicano exemplars or the famous magical realist Garcia Marquez. And I'm wondering how, how does your book invite us to see them instead? Well, so the short answer would be to see them as Latin African right? Not necessarily as a category uh, for race or ethnicity, but rather as a category of literary history. So Nacho Sanchez Prado said this about my book. He says that being able to essentially deterritorialize writers from this, this burden and marker of the ethnic into the cosmopolitan imaginaries is a very important vindication of their work, essentially because well, I mean, frankly, it's borderline insulting to think of these writers, whether they're Chicano or Dominican-American, as mere native informants, because there's so much more than that, right? And I find them to be, uh, have the, I find that Latin African, this Latin African dimension is just one of the many ways in which they become cosmopolitan. Now, I want to, I want to be clear, though, that this category of Latin African is, um, does not replace Latinidad. Um, nor is it an exhaustive historical category, but I think it is a category that in some ways nuances the conversation about the reach of Latinx writing. So for example, I already mentioned Obejas' novel Ruins, which is set in Cuba, actually uses Badagri, Nigeria, repeat, repeatedly, and so you might, one might find it surprising to be reading a novel by a Cuban-American set in Cuba that is also 
spending some time in Nigeria, right? But of course, Badegri in this case is used as a sort of a symbol to, to criticize the commodification of blackness, not only in Cuba and its diaspora, but more, more in general in Latinx literature. Um, or Anaya, who you mentioned, is it might seem strange to think about his connections to plantocracy, but there was a, a U.S. plantocracy in the Southwest where he was from, and that plantocracy is connected to the Congo in many ways. So, um, so these are the ways in which they become really more than I think the, these like sort of, especially in the case of Anaya, you know, who's read usually as this folklorist, Chicano sort of in, in ethnic studies and what world literature perpetuates and circulates about him is the sort of this notion of him never really leaving the U.S. Southwest, right? Never leaving New Mexico, but he does indeed leave. Um, so, um, so that's so that that's the sort of the Latin African connection I I want to to drive home, but I also want to say something about identity politics, just with regards to sort of the what you called about expect what you term sort of the these expectations of how what how we group together these writers through this sort of Latin African lens. So this is not a book about race, right? This is a, this is really about a book about the exclusion of African history in Latinx studies. And also the, the irony that we want to formulate concepts about blackness and of blackness without Africa, in the same way that we want to formulate notions of Latinidad without Latin America. So this is really a, a book that explores how African history, and that's political history, cultural history, literary history, weighs and therefore haunts um, some of the stories that we tell ourselves about, about Latinidad. And, and it's my personal view that I really don't think that uh, any author has to be of African extraction to be able to comment on how anti-Black bias affects the particular communities of, from where they are from, whether you're Chicano, whether you're a Jewish, white, Cuban American that, who also identifies as queer, or Colombian or Mexican. There's something, I see this trend um, happening currently. There's this sort of scary return to identity politics in which we want to pigeonhole authors to an identity and that's seen as progressive when actually that's quite exclusionary. Especially, it's especially exclusionary of marginalized communities in the global South. Are you talking about this idea that we can only kind of write from our own personal experiences? Yeah, so I think that, for example, uh, the fact that Tomás Rivera or uh, Acho Bejas are writing about Angola or writing about the Congo, and we want and we look at that and view that with suspicion, should give us some pause. I think mm. that there is, you know, there there is a sense that again that these writers, by virtue of their identity, can only function and can only have authority in the very sort of ethnicity that they belong to. And I think that that's dangerous because it really limits, um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm Mexican, right? Um, of Mexican descent, but I can't teach a class on Mexican literature, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I, and I don't, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want people to expect me to do that. Right. Um, I, I'm very proud of, of my Mexican origins, but that's simply not what I am dedicated to. That doesn't mean that at one point I don't want to go into, you know, and that doesn't mean I can't teach what I, what I am. And I think that we should do, we should keep doing that. But I also think that there's no reason to deny, um, that, um, our authors that are of some sort of ethnic background cannot, way and opinion of another region, especially when the U.S. was complicit in that hegemonic uh, shift, right? That hegemonic um, exploitation 
um, of regions, not only of Central America and Latin America, but also the Congo, Senegal, uh, South Africa, the Angola, right? Um, a lot of these covert missions of the Cold War era, for example, um, or the exploitation of the Congo for its mines and for its diamonds in the 19th century. So, um, so these are all histories, I think, that, are, that sh show how much more globally oriented these authors are um, and how, and, and more importantly, the, again, this, the global reach of Latinx writing. Each of, each of the authors you're writing about Diaz, Juno Diaz, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Rudolfo Anaya, Tomas Rivera, and Achio Bejas, they're, they're all involved in some act of memorialization of this relationship between Africa and Latin America. And it has this kind of temporal, their memorialization has a kind of temporal aspect to it as well, because you're talking about how they're rehabilitating the past in the present. So I was wondering about this kind of temporal aspect, and I was wondering what what is the past that they're memorializing and rehabilitating, and how is that past reshaping our understanding of the present, specifically by Latino authors and how they want us to understand Latinidad and Latino identity? So I'm, I'm going to tread carefully with this question because um, I, I'm a literary historian, but I'm not an official historian. And so it's outside of my wheelhouse to, to talk on sort of like the methodologies of history here. But I, I think that this book is thinking about rehabilitation as a recovery that makes it available to us in the present, but not necessarily, to borrow your term, uh, reshaping our present. What this book wants to do is reshape our past. Um, and I think that the, the four chapters that constitute the book um, recover the ways in which Africa has been rendered fearful, commodified, obliterated, and distorted. Um, and uh, so we can understand how Africanness functioned during its own special temporality and on its own terms. So, for example, how, and I was talking about the Congo earlier, but how, for example, Congolese history was foundational for the understanding of Chicano identity in the U.S. Southwest for somebody like Anaya or, or Rivera, not only uh, because of the horrific discourses of 19th century, you know, John Gregory Burke, the, the sadistic ethnographer who, uh, you know, penned the infamous The American Congo, but to understand how the American Congo was inherited from discourses about the Congo itself, uh, mm -hmm. written in and within the Congo, and that too is our heritage by association. So, so that's what I mean about sort of re revisiting this history. Um, when we talk about the past and the present, um, I mean, I mean it more. In I mean sites of memory uh, because sites of memory are representations of the past. Any mm -hmm. memorial site like the UNESCO slave route is a is a is a memorial to the past. Um, it's 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 brought into the present because it's been rehabilitated. Therefore, we can now visit it in the present. Um, and when we visit it in, in, the, in our present, we know that the events that unfolded in that site are events that happened in the past. So um, so so this concept is 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 then connected to text because like physical memorials, 
I find, and I argue in the book, that, that, that texts or narratives, fiction, etc., can serve as a launching pad to revisit the erased history, or rather, if more precisely, it's a visible Latinx solidarity with other sites of anti-colonial struggle. Um, I, I'm, I want to, I feel compelled to give listeners another nerd alert here because I'm going to be talking about things like structure and chronology, but, you know, I, I am a historian. And so to read a book that is structured in kind of a reverse chronological order is just like mind bending to me. It's like, I don't know how to operate in, uh, in some kind of framework that is outside of a progression from the past to some moment closer than the present. But you did choose to uh, structure your book in kind of reverse chronological order, starting with Juno Diaz, then Achio Bejas, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and then uh, Rudolfo Anaya and Tomas Rivera. So uh, I'm sure that was intentional. And so I'm wondering what kind of purpose for you um, in terms of argumentation or whatever uh, that decision served for you. So now this this may be a sacrilege to your historian ears, Jerry, so forgive me. Well, so I, I do believe that this book is, is challenging this notion of linear history to some degree, um, because I think that we have a tendency, again, I'm not a historian, so I can't say this with all certainty, but I, I have there, I think that there is a tendency in historical recordings, at least since not from Her Herodotus, you know, necessarily, because he actually had a circular way of talking about history, but, but at least from, I don't know, say the Renaissance forward, we, there, there has been this notion that history is written in a pretty linear fashion, right? And to put this into perspective, when I teach this notion in my class, I have my students read the short story by The Night Facing Up. I forget what it's translated as. And it's essentially, for those that have not read the story, the short story, it's essentially a story in which the protagonist has a motorcycle accident in Buenos Aires, wounds up in a hospital, and... Um, kind of falls in and out of consciousness. And when he is asleep, he dreams up the scenario in which he is uh, an indigenous captive that's running away from the Aztecs who want to commit him to a sacrifice for the gods. And anyways, at the end of the story, he actually finds out that what he was dreaming, the, the Aztec empire period, is the present, or sorry, is, 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 is the reality, and that the motorcycle accident, Buenos Aires, the hospital, etc., is the dream. Now, my students interpret the story as being fantastical because, of course, it's impossible to dream the future, right? Temp temporally, we know that motorcycles existed after the pre-Columbian, pre-Hispanic civilization, so, so that's anachronistic. So they say, well, it's just a fantastic story. That's, of course, it's deemed fantastic when it's read in a linear fashion. But if you read time in a circular way, like the, like the Aztec calendar, it's just a ordinary story, común y corriente, right? And so I think that um, the disruption of, of sort of, of, of this framework of time is something that I'm honoring in the book. Oral proverbs in African history um, sometimes function in this way in nonlinear terms. Sometimes rhizomatic, sometimes they're circular. And, uh, and oral proverbs were an essential part of, of African history, despite the fact that for many years they were not deemed historical, right? Because they weren't committed to writing. And so they, they, had, they had no business being historical, right? And so this is sort of like the, the, 
I don't know, moral imperative, I guess, of the order of, of things, not to, not to cite Foucault. It's sort of reading, uh, uh, in terms of co- cause and consequence, uh, reading from the consequence backwards and upstreaming to, uh, mm-hmm. to understand, for example, I don't know, um, the anti-Black bias in places like the Dominican Republic, right? And to understand that that anti-Black bias is as much a product of colonialism in uh, I don't play like Haiti and the Dominican Republic Española as it is in Benin and the Republic of Dalmay where voodoo and discourses of, of zombieism come from and were distorted even before the Middle Passage, and so to understand that 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 kind of discourse you have to sort of begin from the present and upstream uh, towards the towards the. Now I forget which direction we're going. But anyways, yeah, back towards the past, exactly. Writing Latinos is brought to you by Public Books, an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can find us at publicbooks.org. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-B-O-O-K-S dot org. To donate to Public Books, visit publicbooks.org backslash donate. So multilingualism seems to be an important part of your method. Beyond the existence of sources in many different languages that help you tell your story, like Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, why is multilingualism an important concept for you? Well, there's no question that had I not been able to speak or read Spanish, Portuguese, French, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. I mean, a lot of the source materials that I access are from like, you know, 17th century treaties in the Congo and, and in Dalmay are, are in French. You have Henry Stanley's correspondence that's in English, but, um, but there, you know, the, the Garcia Marquez's, um, all of his interviews, in which he discusses Angola, all of his chronicles about Angola are actually not translated uh, into any language. And so Spanish was definitely necessary there. And then media about the neoliberal turn in West Africa is in French. And so I had to consult that too. So there's no question that multilingualism was important uh, for me and necessary. But but I do want to point out that I think that this kind of work, what this work entails, this transnational and transatlantic scope can be done. It's less about requiring fluency in languages and more, to quote Josie Saldana Portillo, and more a fluency in uh, what she calls a multiple Latin American histories that intersect with the United States' bloodied quest for hegemony, right? So so a global outlook and and, and an interest, frankly, a genuine interest in, in these global histories but I think that more often than not, there is a, a shyness, a, a timidness about languages and, and the cultures and the histories that they represent. And, uh, and so this book challenges that uh, timidness, that shyness, and, and brings, like I said, Latinx, conversa- Latinx literature into conversation with African politics, history, literature. Latinidad itself is about multilingualism. I think I think it's yeah. dawning on us that this is the case. It's not just about Spanish, but it's also about indigenous language and the incorporation of um, African influence as well. So I kind yeah. of thought that that had to do with your multilingualism as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that more often than not, people come to me and say, well, but isn't like, well, I had this conversation with a colleague and, and this colleague said, but isn't multilingualism a sign of, of, of privilege? 
And I said that I actually think that multilingualism, that notion is a, a gross mischaracterization because actually multilingualism, if anything, is a reflection of the global south. You can drop a pin anywhere in the global south and you will find that people in those regions speak multiple languages. If you go to North Africa, people speak French and Spanish and Arabic and English. If you go to Oaxaca, right? People speak uh, Zapoteca and Mixteca and Spanish and, and are also able to seamlessly move between the linguistic worlds that those languages represent. And, and that is a true sign of cosmopolitanism, but we're so ingrained to read it through our U.S.-centric apparatus. Um, I didn't write about this in the book, um, but I'm, I wrote about it for uh, Marissa Lopez and, and John Alba Cutler for a project they have. This poem, it's, 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 a, it's a thrilling poem. I think it's one of the most complex poems in our, in our canon um, by Miguel Algarín. It's called Tanger. It's about exact, ex, it's, it's exactly that region that I was talking about, Morocco. And it's a poem that's in French, Spanish, and English. And what it's trying to do, it's, it's trying to emulate that cosmopolitanism of these young boys that are sold into the sex trade there. And the poetic voice is really taken by uh, how truly cosmopolitan these children are, despite the fact that they have absolutely no agency in their own lives, right? But they're still, but they're, he's still, mar the poetic voice is still marveled uh, by this, by this, again, this multilingualism, this, this, this cultural astuteness that, to be honest, we're, we're kind of losing in this country. One of the things I really appreciated about your book and about you as a scholar is that you take Africa very seriously. And I, I didn't know that you were also trained as an Africanist. And so you're not just using Africa or Blackness as a kind of monolithic or empty category. You're taking African folklore, African cultures seriously. And so about this method, this is an important part of the way that you went about this project. And about this approach, you write, quote, my fieldwork along the slave route highlights the mutually constituting ways in which physical and textual memorials reconstruct a Latin American narrative in places we might not have looked initially. So I, I want to know about what your fieldwork along the slave route looked like. What What is the work you did there? So when I started my project, I wanted to find out more about these Latin African narratives from the African point of view. And so I thought, well, what better sites to research in than sites in which the Americas would be thought about or invoked all the time? And that's the UNESCO Slave Route. And the UNESCO Slave Route was a project initiated in partnership with Haiti and Benin in 1992. And that was essentially what they did is they rehabilitated former slave trade points along the West African coast. And that essentially uh, turned into a UNESCO-sponsored heritage circuit that single-handedly saved a lot of these African nation states from bankruptcy after you know decades of civil unrest. So, um, so yes, it's a neoliberal project and it's far from benevolent, but they are sites in which I could go and, for example, inquire in the locality about, you know, their point of view of what exactly happened in these spaces. Um, I also spoke to historians there. I spoke to acquaintances. It was similar to the kind of research that Sadia Hartman did for Lose Your Mother. I wanted to sort of figure out where Latinidad was triangulated in these sites, if at all. 
And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, um, these guides would tell me, you know, ask, cause they would, you know, you know, I would tell them about you know, me being Mexican. And so they would say, oh, you know, we, I met Shakira or they would say, say, oh, do you sing like Selena? <laughs> you know, things like that, you know, like they would hold on to the cultural markers that they had to connect, which I thought was brilliant, you know, but it, it became very, uh, very, um, evident that at these sites, history was being performed for the tourist, right? For the visitor. And so stories were being catered for the visitor. And indeed, when James Sweet, the Africanist historian, James Sweet says that when he went to Elmina, American influence was everywhere. I very much found that to be the case. I should have also mentioned that I also went to these sites because the site of Badagri and Gore in Senegal were memorialized in, in Nacho Vejas in ruins in this, you know, novel that she published in 2009. So I was like, you know, very intrigued by these sites of memory. And so I went out to, to see what kind of stories were being told there. And um, at least to <laughs> Senegal and, and Benin. And, um, and so anyways, this is what sort of became the foundation, the sort of theoretical foundation of the book. I decided that if historical sites of memory use fiction, right, because, you know, maybe they never met Selena, maybe they never met Shakira, who knows, right? But if historical sites of memory used fiction to produce a Latin African engagement, then how could fictions use these historical sites for the same means? So in other words, it's what brought me into this notion of a textual memorial, which is actually a term that I elaborate from Mary Pat Brady. And textual memorials function as essentially a recovery method. If you read a text spatially with pauses and contemplation, like you would a heritage site, and with a little help of the speculative, which I know I'm speaking to a historian, but you know, just mind, you know, just, yeah, don't mind me and my speculative. So a little bit of the speculative, a little bit of like sort of thinking about pauses and contemplation, you and with informal interviews, um, it, all of these, these notions sort of produce a narrative that you can then compare uh, to the text because the text is also using these spatial, these, these spaces in which you can, again, can contemplate and pause and use a little bit of the speculative um, to reveal lost traces of an African influence or an African engagement. Last question. There's just so much talk in the world these days, and I guess by the world, I mean my my world of Latino identity, Latino history and culture, about centering Blackness and fighting anti-Blackness in the conversations that we're having about Latino identity. You know, a lot of this has to do with the recorded audio tape of the LA city council members saying what they said. Some of it has to do with a recent proposal by the Census Bureau to collapse the race ethnicity question on the 2030 census, which has a lot of Afro-Latino organizations concerned. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, your your book is certainly intervening in these conversations and it has it, it, it's dialogues with them, but it's coming at it from a very different angle, less, less, uh, you know, about the kind of public spectacle of a scandal that needs to be addressed immediately and more about just kind of fundamentally rethinking all of the things that shape us. So I don't know, maybe I just answered the question I'm about to ask, but I'm wondering how you see your book in dialogue with these kind of very public conversations about centering Blackness in conversations about Latinos. In the spirit of keeping it short, I, what I will say is this, is that 
we, we have to remember that the U.S. is a hegemony. And as such, it's going to produce ideologies of supremacy and U.S. multi-ethnic communities are not going to be immune from performing these discourses or appropriating them. I mean, you yourself and your work have, have said as much. Um, others uh, like Erica Edwards regarding the complicity of black writing and U.S. hegemony, for example, has discussed this. Patricia Stolke's The Roots of Repair, the complicity, for example, in queer theory and practices of exclusion, right? So this is not necessarily new, but, but I think that in terms of Latino scholarship, Latino scholarship has a lot to lose or gain, depending on what direction the field takes. Latinx scholarship can praise centering blackness all at once, but can, it, can we center blackness without Africa? It's a question, right? I mean, I think that the categories we have in this country to speak about racial exclusion are insufficient at best or universalist and hegemonic at worst because they do not bother to consult other disciplines outside of the US because you know they think only the US matters. Um, it's, it's like saying that undocumented people only begin to matter to the discipline the moment they enter the US border space and not a minute before. I, I feel very similarly, and I, again, I don't mean to be provocative here, but I feel kind of similarly about the category of Latinx, actually, um, which I find to be exclusionary of, Spanish -speaking, of the Spanish-speaking community because the O was always already gender neutral, what, what, what uh, gram grammaticians call gender neutral, because it's an expression of what they call grammatical gender and not what they call uh, biological gender or what we might call a sex assigned at birth, right? Um, but we don't bother to understand Spanish and or the way Spanish functions because we are reading it from a U.S. centric perspective and worse, imposing that term onto a Spanish speaking population that happens to be the most vulnerable in this country. And that doesn't seem uh, right from a progressive perspective. I'm not saying that we need to do away with Latinx as a term, but I'm saying that far from collapsing categories, I think that we need to broaden them um, and have various choices and if we want to center blackness, we need to follow France Fanon's lead, <laughs> uh, who pleaded, who would, was always pleading for uh, an, an internationalism that, of course, was multilingual, but was but for, was first and foremost interested in case studies all over the global South, um, literacy campaigns from Burma to Argentina. Um, he says in the Wretched of the Earth. This is the true internationalism that perhaps wasn't available to us in the 20th century, but this is the 21st century. <laughs> I mean, I have heard many critiques of Latinx, but not this one in particular, how it kind of um, underscores this American provincialism and lack of understanding of how Spanish actually works and what the O in Latino is supposed to signify. So uh, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I think I might have interrupted you. So did you have any uh, kind of concluding words that you wanted to say? I think that that the, the controversy with the LA City Council, yes, there's a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about the ways in which we have inherited biases from Latin America, but there was very little discussion about how those have been perpetuated and continued in the US. And I think that, again, to center blackness involves turning around and valorizing the communities that are being disparaged, in this case, Oaxacans. And again, as I mentioned, Oaxacans are profoundly cosmopolitan because, again, they speak Mixteca and Zapoteca and Mazateco, in addition to Spanish and other languages, European languages that they have to learn to uh, cater to tourism, right? So 
um, we should find that admirable and valorize it. And that I think if we if we can center cosmopolitanism, then we can center the you know the the race and the ethnicity components that go with that. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, here you have it, folks. This was Sarah Casada talking about her new book, The African Heritage of Latinx and Caribbean Literature, plus so, so much more. I, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much for spending some time with us, Sarah. Thank you, Jerry. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Writing Latinos. We'd love to hear your suggestions for new books that we should be reading and talking about. Drop us a line at geraldo at publicbooks.org. That's G-E-R-A-L-D-O at publicbooks.org. This episode is brought to you by Public Books. It was produced and edited by Tasha Sandoval. Our music is City of Mirrors by the Chicago-based band Dos Santos. I'm Gerardo Cadava. We'll see you again right here in two weeks. Bye.